Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alexandreou. I was watching Rishi Sunak's big interview of 2024 on Laura Kunzberg a few weeks ago. He was talking about reducing the cost of welfare. He was angry, actually angry, about the recent rise in people deemed unfit for work because he believes, and I quote, very strongly in the importance of rewarding hard work. He went on to say, in the last decade, you've seen the number of people who are signed off has tripled. Now, do I think our country is three times sicker than it was a decade ago? The answer is no. That evidence-free unkindness really niggled me for days. I carried it like a tiny wounding pebble in my shoe, because actually the only surprise to me was that we would be only three times sicker, considering the last 15 years of financial crisis, austerity, Brexit, insecurity, wars, and a pandemic later. And it was during that period that this splendid angle-shifting book came across my desk. How We Break, Navigating the Wear and Tear of Living. I am excited to have its author with me today. Vincent Deary is a professor of applied psychology at Northumbria University and also works as a clinician in the UK's first dedicated transdiagnostic fatigue clinic. Welcome to the bunker, Vincent Deary. I'm so honoured to be here. And uh, that was a very timely introduction. I like that. Vincent, How We Break is the second book in an aspired trilogy. Yes. The first How We Are was published nine years ago, and you freely admit that How We Break is quite a bit bleaker. Yeah. What has changed in between for the world and for you? I think to begin with the sort of larger proscenium under which we're all operating, it's everything you just said, which is I started this book actually more than 10 years ago now. I've been thinking about the whole trilogy for years. And... In the course of the last 10 years of writing it, or dedicating myself after the first book came out, the world changed, didn't it? Mm. It became a very different place. And to put it in the kind of the parlance of my own discipline, the amount of stuff out there that switched its valence to threatening yeah. just really escalated. The world became an unsafer, more uncertain place, a lot of the institutions and kind of interpersonal social contracts we took for granted got shaken up or broken or rethought. So it just felt that at the bigger picture level, the world became a more threatening place. Mm -hmm. And I think if I had published this book 10 years ago, I might have gone down the kind of the standard cognitive behavioural line of, you know, we break because we're not thinking right or we're not doing the right thing. But what I saw over the last decade is how many people are not broken through their own weaknesses or faults or insufficiencies, but because of the systems and relationships and networks that they become embroiled in mm. and that deplete them. So that, that was a bigger picture. More personally, through working in the fatigue clinic, but also through watching my friends, my colleagues, my family, I saw almost everyone struggle. I, I saw loads yeah. of people go under. Some crossed the clinical line, you know, some became cases, as it were, but other people were just really exhausted, worn out, worried, anxious. It felt like the joy had drained out of their yeah. lives. And, yeah. so, and I became interested in how does my academic discipline explain the suffering in a way that does justice to its complexity and individuality because no two people were breaking in the same way. It's interesting you should mention that because I think one of the things that came through to me is that the way you use case histories mm. in the book 
it didn't have that observational detachment that the therapist often has. Yeah. It has a kind of personal, compassionate involvement, which made the book more human than academic, I guess. Why did you choose that approach? Did you choose that approach? Or is it, no, did it just I, grow organically? <laughs> there is a bit of that, but I would really take that as a compliment because that was partly the intention. It is meant as a compliment Thank entirely. Thank you. Because, uh, you know, I can write academically, but it is boring as hell sometimes mm. writing an academic paper because it's a very fixed format. And it goes back to what I was saying about trying to do justice to the complexity of things. And also the the why I'm writing these books is partly to understand myself. Mm. So I'm in there and some people have called it memoir, but it's more me as case history. I was trying to unpick my own upbringing, like growing up queer in yeah. 1960s and 70s Scotland and just the continuing impact of that on my being, which has yeah. ch changed over time. Or trying to understand why a woman as massively talented as my mother was so, for want of a better word, deformed by the constrictive circumstances of kind of mid-20th century yeah. working class Scotland. It was that kind of level of individuality that a diagnosis of depression or social anxiety doesn't do justice doesn't to. Doesn't cover absolutely. a lifetime of that kind of social foot binding almost that we go very through. well put and it's trying to say that to understand the richness of what henry james called the terrible algebra mm. of our own suffering you really have to zoom in on the case and so that is why the, the people i presented are either fictionalized versions of people i've seen in my nhs clinical work or the real people in my life including myself yeah. and hopefully that brings it to life that was kind of the intention it does and it also makes it quite personal at times i mean you often ask questions directly to the reader that sort of piercing of the, of the veil i found it quite bracing the first couple of times and i was like <laughs> what's going on who is this man that's asking me questions but there is a sense that we are fellow travelers yeah. rather than teacher and pupil it is also quite personal at times with references to your mother extensively, your former partner, and even your own struggles you hint at. You never yes. fully unveil what happened, but you hint at the fact that you had your own struggles in the last decade. Mm. How important is it, do you think, for a psychologist not to pose as this totally sorted exemplar that instantly puts the person trying to unburden themselves at a huge disadvantage. Absolutely. I think you need to think about the the context in which it's happening because in the therapy room, I'm not going to tell you all about my of personal course. history, but if I was, and I am on the other foot, as it were, or in the other chair, I, I do see a very, very competent Jungian therapist called Paul Atanello. And he, he has been through the wars, for a want of a better way of putting it. And I trust him. And I trust that whatever I come up with, he will contain. And I'd, I've kind of ended a couple of my therapies when I just saw, actually, that really freaked the person out, what mm. I just said. Because <laughs> you don't feel safe. And so if I was going to see someone, I'd, I'd want to see someone like Paul who, who could contain their own stuff and who had been through enough of life to kind of know what it's like to hit bottom or to face death or to go through bereavement, grief, to to deal with their own anxiety. So, mm. 
Yeah, like I said, I wouldn't do it in the therapy room, but I think it's important that we have a sense of what it is like to be pushed to our own limits. I think we're better therapists as a result. Okay, so let's get into it. Mm. Talk to me about the notion that we are all born trembling because yeah. I, that I found that very evocative. So the sort of hard science techie answer would be if you look at our tendency to worry, to alarm, to hypervigilance, to low mood, there's a bell curve distribution. Some people are born with a lot of fear and trembling. Mm. Some people are born with hardly any. I never meet them, but apparently they do exist. Mm. And most of us are somewhere in the middle. There's a kind of, there's a bell curve distribution on right. how much we find life difficult. And looking at my own personal experience, this is one of the, the, the places I use myself as example in the book. In the last three, four months of my mum's pregnancy, I was the fourth kid, working class, Scottish family, not a great relationship with my dad. So her anxiety, which she was always very prone to, she was really one of the born trembling, went off the scale. Mm. She was hospitalised, she was tranquilised for part of it. And the research seems to show that if your mum has been through that kind of intense psychosocial and physical stress, it kind of understandably affects you. You know, yeah, the, the yeah. You, you, me you and my mum's womb. Yeah, you do, because it sort of makes biological sense that your threat biology should be tuned up mm -hmm. a bit more finely because, you know, if your mum's stressed the hell out, chances are you're going to be born yeah. into a difficult environment. Absolutely, makes sense. So, yes, yeah, so all of us are born with a degree of it. Some of us get forced into it through that kind of intrauterine experience. But then I think in our early experience, some of us, again, using myself as an example, but seeing it in my mum, seeing it in my ex-partner, some of us are forced into circumstances where we don't fit that well. So we have to be more vigilant. We have to be more sensitive to threat. We have to be on alert. So that kind of trembling dial gets switched mm, up mm. in some of us. So that's partly what I was trying to capture, that both genetically, constitutionally, early environment, but also early life circumstance. Some of us are just... A shorter distance from breaking. Than yes, yeah, basically. well put. Yep. So how does that relate to the concept of allostatic load? Allostasis is the work that you have to do when things are challenging. For instance, if there's intense work demands, you'll have to go up a gear in terms of physical energy. You'll be having more feelings of anxiety. You'll be having more thoughts of, can I get this right? So kind of body, heart and mind are having to go up a gear. Yeah. And that process is known as allostasis. It's adjusting or adapting to increased demand. Yeah. And that's great. It's good we can do that. It's how we're getting this done. I presume we're both slightly in a higher gear than we were when we met five minutes ago. Of course. And hopefully we'll be able to kind of recover afterwards. But that doesn't always happen. And that's when allostasis becomes allostatic load. When that gearing up doesn't get a chance to gear down, when your system is constantly revving up and you can never quite push the off button or go down a gear again, and it's clear from the the psychoneuroimmunology literature, and basically that means that the interaction of psychosocial factors in your body, that that is not just affecting your mind and your feelings. It's affecting your body. It affects your inflammation, affects your heart rate, affects the, the, the way those systems speak. So that is something I was trying to bring across in the book, that 
our struggling and our breaking isn't just mental and emotional, it's also physical. Yes. Because all those systems talk to each other. And that's all caught up in this notion of allostatic load, which practically quite a lot of my clients in the clinic found really useful. They could look back and go, actually, there was too much going on for too long. And which is probably the simplest way to think of allostatic load. So instead of going up in a gear and down a gear, yes. you just, it's just a crank, basically, um, that is yeah. always ratcheting. Yes. Ratcheting, ratcheting. Totally. And switching off can become more and more difficult. Is it useful in combating stress? Especially when, as you suggest, it can be, I really like this word, embodied, mm. um, that you use in the book. Is it useful to believe we are always potentially a step away from snapping? Doesn't that stress us even more? <laughs> are we not better off being ignorant of our trembling is what, is what I'm trying to... Well, but I do think there is that thing to do a sort of terrible mangling of Emily Dickinson that because I wouldn't stop for life, life stopped for me. Mm. I think some people only hit their limit when they hit it. So I think having a, a, a sense of your limits and your vulnerabilities yeah. it is really important. So I'm not saying everybody should go about being alarmed all the mm. time because, like you say, that's precisely what we don't want to do. But I guess I think of it in terms of demand and capacity. It's it's just having that discernment in the moment of is too much being demanded of me and or do I have the capacity to deal with what I have to deal with yeah. at the moment. So it's that kind of balance between the the incoming and your ability to deal with the incoming. Now, I promised I was not going to turn this into a personal therapy session. But Feel free. I, but I will indulge myself with this one question because I think it will be of relevance to people listening. This idea of embodied stress that we were talking about, mm. and especially on-off states. Yes. Because this really hit me hard. Tell, tell me a little bit about it. So, again, if you think of it from the biological, the psychobiological, very simplistically, you've got an on system in terms of either drive to do stuff or that's also sensitive to threat, either achievement or threat, you're going to have to gear up to deal with them. Mm. And then th there's your off switch, which has been able to recover from both of those things. Yeah. So one is served by your sympathetic nervous system, that's the on, but and the parasympathetic nervous system, that's your off switch. They're both equally important. And what pushes us to the edge is not that either of those systems go wrong, it's the balance between them. Yeah. It's the always being on and not being able to switch off. So to, to take an example from athletics, athletes have really high heart rate variability, which means they can gear up when they have to. So for the challenge, they kind of go one, two, three, four, five. They're right to the top of their game. But equally, when, when the challenge is over, their heart rate really goes down to a low resting mm. heart rate. So it's that kind of physiological flexibility to respond to challenge that when you're beginning to tremble and struggle that's what you you begin to lose you lose both your highs and your lows you can never really fully gear up yeah. and you can never totally switch off you're just in this state of so you get no recovery basically totally yeah and often people describe it as tired but wired they're they're exhausted and they know they should be able to switch off but they can't yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's a big theme of what we dealt with in the fatigue clinic. And I, I had a very clear image when I was reading that bit of a, a sort of spinning top, mm. you know, that looks very 
centered and in control yes. as long as it's going really fast. That's and then the moment it begins to slow down, yeah. it begins to rotate quite wildly and it needs to go fast again or it will yeah, yeah. basically just <laughs> um, spin away. How does acceptance and commitment therapy differ to more conventional therapies? Because this is something you're really a strong advocate for. I think that's fair to say, isn't it? Well, I certainly draw on it a fair amount. I draw on acceptance and commitment therapy. I draw on compassion-focused therapy, and but also other schools of therapy in the wisdom literature. But I think what compassion-focused therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy, which we often just call ACT, what, what, yeah. they, what they draw on is, well, explicitly they draw on Buddhism. Uh, right. They, they, they're heavily indebted to the Buddhist tradition and the belief that the problem is not so much the fact that you have difficult thoughts or difficult feelings. The fact is that you get too attached to them. Mm -hmm. So that's why mindfulness has been imported wholesale. So to give you a practical example, uh, I have a lot of social anxiety and I used to let those feelings dictate what I did. So if I was feeling anxious, I would stop or I'd try and make those feelings go away. But it's that white bear effect. You know, mm, if I ask mm, you not mm. to think of a white bear, that's yes, all you're yes, going to yes. think of. And it's the same when you try and when you get locked in a struggle with difficult feelings. It's like saying, I mustn't be feeling anxious. So you can get anxious about being anxious or you can get depressed about being anxious or anxious about being depressed. Uh, all, all the time. I mean, yeah, you absolutely. Know, it's something people describe all the time. And so the act approach to that is to go, OK, those feelings are going to show up. They're, they're part of the normal doing business mm. of life. And I think that's what I like about the ACT approach. It's, it doesn't pathologize those feelings. It doesn't say there's something abnormal that yes. we need to get rid of. Rather, let's look at our relationship to them. Are you spending ages trying to make those feelings go away as opposed to saying, OK, that feeling, I'm going to go to the dinner party. That social anxiety is going to show up, but I can deal with it. Mm. So it's it's basically not putting those feelings in the driving seat. That's part of what I've got from ACT. Do you think, Vincent, that Western notions of getting over stuff are quite damn? And I do say they're Western notions because, you know, in my home country, Greece, when I came over to the UK in 1990, there was no such thing as a self-help book. It just didn't exist yeah. as a genre in the Balkans. So it is a Western notion, this get over stuff, mm. this self-help. Are they damaging in that they prevent us from processing stuff instead? I've I've always thought that getting over things is almost an alternative to going through them. Yeah. And yeah. that going through them is quite important. Yeah, it is. And staying with it. Again, it's it's a... Uh... Something you see in various schools of therapy, that notion of staying with the difficulty rather than mm. trying to make it go away. It's interesting. In the book, I look at the way our notion of trauma has evolved and the, the way PTSD came into being as a diagnosis mm. in the, I think it was the early 1980s. Because we often think of these things as, as fixed and final, that trauma is this unitary thing. Whereas if you look at, for instance, some of the transcultural psychiatry stuff that's looked at trauma in Cambodia, they don't really use the same terminology and they've mm. got a slightly different relationship to this notion of trauma. There's much more, again, a Buddhist approach that actually this is not something that we need to make go away or conquer. This is something that is 
actually a natural reaction to the awful social convulsions yeah. we've all been through. So one of the recurring themes in the book is these things aren't so much problems in themselves. It's always about our own relationship to it. So I think for some people, they might need to process stuff. Mm. Other people, for a time, actually, it might be better to be able to bracket it and get on with other stuff. I think it's about figuring out where you are yeah. in relation to your own struggle in the moment. And I think that can be culturally prescribed, but it's also highly individualised yeah. as well, I think. There, there is a difficulty, I find, you know, from my other life as an actor, uh, I've always had this theory that the British can't really do Chekhov <laughs> because they don't understand passive states. They don't, they don't get that, you know, things are not obstacles to negotiate yes. necessarily, that yeah. there is beauty and intrinsic value to loneliness or unrequited yes. love or grief. Yes. And, and that there are cultures out there yes. that like to sit with it and wallow in it. You Absolutely. Know? And, and, when and we don't do that. Yes. We find that really difficult and self-indulgent and we beat ourselves up about it. And I think there's also that notion of waiting that you get in Chekhov. There's yeah. that notion yes, of, absolutely. Of, of just sitting, like you say. And I think it's funny, I, I was doing a, a, a podcast earlier today and there was five minutes before it started and there was a group of therapists online. It was, it was for colleagues. And there was just this glorious five minutes where we didn't have to do anything hmm. and everybody was just having a drink or having their sandwich and there was just this noise, this gentle hum of human beings just Life being happening, with it. Yeah. yeah, and it was lovely. And I think you're really spot on. I think we have this narrative of sort of conquering the dragon or facing mm. the monster mm. that we have to, you know, confront this thing head on and slay it as opposed to actually just going... Let's see how this unfolds in my life. And busyness. Oh, God, you know. busyness. Uh, it might seem a silly example, but it really struck me today. The the crossings, the pedestrian crossings in London. I've just come down from Newcastle. There's a real sense of urgency in them. You, you get the, the green figure <laughs> saying you can go, but then you get a countdown. You get 10, <laughs> 9, 8. And I'm quite slow and I deliberately go slower. And I was halfway across the road before I should have been, you know, off. So I think you're right. There is this endemic urgency that doesn't allow us to sit with stuff and let it unfold. So let me move to, the, I'll call it, the practical portion of the, yeah. of the interview. How vital is rest and refreshment? What do we tend to do wrong? And what are good strategies for doing rest right? It's really vital. It's uh, it's one of the lessons I've learned myself the hard way, because as you mentioned, it, it, I myself was post-virally exhausted for about a year. Mm. And it, but it was it was physical, but it was also emotional and mental. I was kind of wiped out and I had to learn how to manage my own energy. <laughs> and it's really easy to tell someone who's sitting in the clinical chair what to do, but having to do it to yourself is is a very different picture. So both through clinical and personal experience, I've learned the value of genuine recovery, particularly when people have been through a lot. We have lost this notion of convalescence. Yeah. We've lost this notion that actually when stuff happens, you need some time to reset your system and you need a gentle context in which to do that. So what, what I saw a lot, particularly in people's relationship to their employers, is, OK, your, your mum and dad have just died. Take two weeks off and then come back. And it's like, 
Really? You know, in the old days, we yeah. would have seen the mourning period and certainly its effects go on for some time. Not meaning you have to take two years off, but sure. some acknowledgement that you may not be the same for a while and you may need to treat yourself differently. Yeah. So that's the kind of the bigger, longer term picture. But just day to day after doing this, I'll go and I'm going to sit in a cafe and have a, a quiet cup of tea. I will kind of try and deliberately switch down a gear. And that sort of recovery resting, but also prophylactic resting is really important that we punctuate our times of expenditure of energy. between things. Totally. Basically. Yeah, even if we don't feel we need them. And that's something that I'd, I've really learned myself is rest before you really have to. Because if you really have to, it won't be rest. It will be collapse. You also speak of doors and windows of escape, but mm. they are not all created equally, are they? Um, how do stressful environments like social media or even actually binging a thrilling series on yeah. Netflix or something, you know, yeah. we, we tend to think of those things as taking away from our load. But, yeah. but actually, sometimes they're, they're not. They're adding to it. They can. And well, one of the peripheral influences to this book, and I think he'll probably be more central to the next one, is Spinoza. And he's got a lovely way of thinking about ethics, not in a kind of absolute good or bad sense, but much more relationally. Are these things mm. good or bad for me? Because what could be good for me could be toxic for you. And that's what I see in social media. I, I don't particularly enjoy interacting with it because it definitely switches on my threat sensitivity. Mm -hmm. I'm just looking for, you know, someone to pick up on something and all to yeah, go yeah, terribly yeah. wrong. <laughs> or you see other people who get really invested in the in the drama for mm. want of a better way of putting it which is kind of fine but that's quite a high physiological arousal state which may suit some people but some people it really won't so i would suggest and this is what i do is just see does this work for me you know is this actually good or bad for me so i'd be loath to come up with an absolute judgment but just think about your relation to it yeah there's this thing I've jotted down here uh, where you're at, if we imagine our lifetime of ego-driven melodrama and its narration as the play, then the self is the theatre and the work of well-being then is not to change the play, <laughs> but to be the theatre. Yes, yeah, yeah. To just contain it. To, Absolutely. You know, yeah. this is not a conventional self-help book. It is in some ways a, a book about accepting that one cannot always help oneself. How damaging is the fact that mental health provision is on its knees at the moment when the nation seems to need it the most? I mean, yeah. are we looking at a generation of, you know, serious mental ill health, basically? I think we're looking at very poor service provision. It's a really kind of technically boring answer, but... It, no, I get it, but yeah. I mean, the reason I'm raising it is because... With everything you, you talk about in the book, early intervention yes. is key. Yes, And is. early intervention is exactly what's not happening at yeah. the moment. So yeah. you have a lot of people basically sitting around this country just getting worse. Yes. And also, I, I think there's two sides to it. So th there's the kind of the acute early intervention side and there's the long-term uh, care side of it. So I think from the early intervention side... I think we need more literacy, kind of biopsychosocial literacy. We need to understand 
what kind of creatures we are. We need to understand our mm. threat biology as as well as our, our hearts and minds. And I think in a way that doesn't blame the individual, because I think part of what has been slightly problematic about previous attempts at that are it's very much your thinking, your behaviour, as opposed to actually going, OK, if you put any creature in that environment, we are exquisitely sensitive creatures. Yeah. That will... Th- that will play upon our threat biology yep. and that's how that feels. So giving us more literacy in those terms would be useful. But at the other side of it, we were working in the fatigue clinic with people with long-term conditions, often both mental and physical, and there was no continuity. There was no long-term service for these people and there was no... There was no oversight. They were often having to be their own case managers. Yep. They, they would get six sessions of this, a, an appointment once every six months with this other person, maybe some benefits advice if they were lucky, but they were having to do the work of managing not only their illness, but also their own care. And that's what really struck me, that we're now in a position of asking people who are already struggling to do the work of looking after themselves. Mm. And that is what happens when service provision is cut, I think. Okay, so what are the, you know, given we cannot wait nine years for how we mend. Oh, I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) What are the practical alternatives? You know, are there good proxies, basically? I mentioned I was doing a, a podcast with some therapists earlier on, and one of them had this lovely insight. She was saying that it's our job also to look out for each other, that she had a colleague who everybody could see was at their limit and Mm. was going under. But even with their emotional literacy, no one was quite able to say to him in advance, look, I think you're really struggling. Is there Mm. anything we can do? Until he actually did collapse. And, you know, he's in recovery now. But I think that looking out for each other is really important. Not only becoming aware of your own limits, but seeing those around you. Which is intimately connected to not seeing it as a failing. Absolutely. Because if you see it as a failing, then you can't go up to someone and say, are you failing in this way? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's really key because I Uh, And again, I see it in work culture in particular, but we often attach our own value and worth to our productivity. Mm. And so if your value, if your self-worth is struggling and you're not able to be productive, then you get into that loop of just feeling worthless. So I think uncoupling your own sense of your value and your productivity is really important, but quite culturally difficult. I think we're really trained yeah. To value ourselves by our outputs. It's a simple but difficult shift. It really is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Vincent Deary, thank you for a great chat and, and a really great contribution to the larger conversation, I think. Alex, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. You can buy How We Break, Navigating the Wear and Tear of Living through our affiliate bookshop.org and you'll help fund the bunker and help support independent bookshops too. And of course, you can also support us directly from as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Links are in the show notes. I leave you today with the words of the Bengali poet and polymath Tagore. I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I awoke and saw that life was service. I acted and behold, service was joy. This is Alexandro in the bunker saying over and out.
The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Liam Tate and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>